0: to ai arthritis voices 360 this is the official talk show for the international foundation autoimmune and autoinflammatory arthritis which we just say ai arthritis for short my name is tiffany westridge robertson i'm the ceo of the organization original founder and person living with the conditions myself axial spondyloarthritis to be exact and like always on the show I am not alone. I have people joining me here at the table and it is an exciting episode, I tell you. It's a continued episode and a building on something that we put on the table on episode 88, which was about uh, biosimilars. And we talked about something called the Inflation Reduction Act or the IRA. And since we put that topic on the table, that gave us grounds to spin off. And we say 360 or a 360 it. We're gonna do a whole entire episode just on this 360 on the IRA. And I have some amazing people here with me today that I'm gonna turn over and let them introduce themselves. Um, first up, Michael. Hi, Michael.
1: Hey, Tiffany. Thanks for having uh, me here today. Uh, I'm Michael Riley. I'm the executive director of the Alliance for Safe Biologic Medicines. Uh, I have been in that uh, role for the past 13 years. Uh, And previous to that, I was the associate deputy secretary uh, at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, working alongside Tom Barker, who's also on our panel um, dealing with regulations on CMS and FDA and others, and um, we were both fortunate almost 20 years ago to be at Constitution Hall when the president signed Part D, which is what we're going to be talking about today.
0: Mm-hmm. That's amazing, and that's really exciting uh, introduction, really, just to lead into a little bit more of what we're talking about, because we're going to get a, a really great background in history to get everyone caught up on where we are today. So in saying that, let's move over to to Thomas.
2: Thank you, Tiffany. You know, Michael, I hadn't thought of it until you just mentioned it, but it actually is almost exactly 20 years ago. I think it was December 8th. Oh, it was. 2009. Oh President Bush signed the MMA. So it's it was exactly 20 years ago. Yep. So hi everyone. My name's Tom Barker. I am a partner at the law firm of Foley Hoag. I've been at this firm for 14 years. My practice focuses mainly on representing biotech, pharma, life sciences companies with Medicare and Medicaid coverage, coding, and reimbursement issues. As Michael said, prior to joining Foley Hoag, I was at HHS, where he and I worked together. I was the general counsel of HHS, uh, represented all of the component agencies of the department, CMS, the FDA, NIH, all of the various Departments within HHS, and and in in that role, had an opportunity to really focus and drill down on Medicare and Medicaid and FDA regulatory matters.
0: It's wonderful, Tom. We're so excited to have you on one of the first time you've been on the show. So welcome. We really appreciate it. And let's say hello to Chuck. Hi, Chuck.
3: Hi, Stephanie. Thanks for the chance to be here today. So. I, I'm currently the head of federal government affairs for Gilead Sciences, the largest manufacturer of HIV medicines in America. Uh, I think for the purpose of this discussion, more relevantly, I had been the previously the chief counsel, but during the Medicare Modernization Act, the lead counsel of the Energy and Commerce Committee, which is one of the three congressional committees that negotiated the creation of the Part D drug benefit, and then spent 17 years on Capitol Hill uh, in a variety of roles, where I got to actively oversee implementation of many of the provisions of the MMA.
0: Wonderful, and also first time on the show, so we really appreciate you being here. Thank you. And last, but certainly not least, hi, Andy. Hey,
4: hey, Tiffany, everybody. Uh, My name is Andrew Spiegel, and um, my role today is um, as a patient advocate. I've been in the advocacy community for more than two decades, uh, most of that time in the cancer space. I originally got involved in the cancer world in the late 1990s, having co-founded the Colon Cancer Alliance, which is the first colon cancer patient group in the United States. And about 10 years into that um, that organization, we started a new organization called the Global Colon Cancer Association, and that was in partnership with... Um, and we're European counterparts. And now I run the Global Colon Cancer Association full-time as the CEO of the organization, and we are the umbrella organization to more than 80 colon cancer groups around the world. The other hat I wear is uh, that I'm the board chair of the World Patients Alliance, and we're the largest patient organization in, in the world working across all diseases. We have about 470 patient organization members, from 117 countries. So between those two roles, I, I've been pretty busy, but I never forget that uh, Michael and I co-founded uh, with a group of others, the Alliance for Safe Biologic Medicines more than a decade ago. So that is a third hat that I've worn many, many times around the world in representing ASBM and working with Michael on uh, safe biologic medicines, and now working um, to ensure that the patient voice is heard with the, uh, the um, IRA. So thanks again for having me. Yep.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, so that's how I actually met Michael and Andy originally was as a member of ASBM. And as I mentioned, we put this topic of the IRA on the table a few months back. We'll definitely link to that episode and wanted to make sure that we really took some time to break out and talk about this. Uh, as you know, we've got different patient perspectives and groups that are represented on this call, AI arthritis does work with other groups around the world. We are international, um, even though we focus on the autoimmune and auto-inflammatory arthritis. In saying that, it's very relevant in the conversation today because we are going to be talking about these, these IRA negotiations. We're going to start with the history to sort of catch everybody up on where we are today, and then also the impact that it can potentially have to people living with these diseases, including access. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start off by just asking to give a little bit of a background on the Part D. Who would like to start that off?
1: I would recommend that Tom start that off, just because he did a phenomenal job in our webinar of kind of providing that history, and I think that will launch us into a big, deeper conversation.
2: Sounds good. Thanks, Michael. So, you know, I just want to say right up front today, this is really perfect timing for this discussion because just a couple of days ago on Friday, the FDA approved the first two therapies using gene editing to cure a disease one using CRISPR, one using virus to deliver the corrected gene into patients with sickle cell disease. And I think it's worth asking will the companies that are using these tools be willing to make the investment of time, resources, complex science, when they know that politicians want to impose price price controls and innovative new therapy. And so I think this is really a good way to start off talking about Medicare Part D, because what Medicare Part D did was to take a new approach to regulating or maybe a better word is establishing a mechanism to control pricing in a government program. Prior to the enactment of Medicare Party, the government set prices in the Medicare and Medicaid program. There's no other way to say it. They set prices, they controlled and regulated prices. They said, this is going to be the price for a particular hospital procedure, for a physician procedure, for a hospital outpatient service, for a home health service, for a skilled nursing facility service, and they regulated prices. And the history shows of 40 years of regulating prices in the Medicare program, it didn't work. Part D came along with a different approach. Part D came along with an approach that said, Rather than having the government set prices, we're gonna rely on the marketplace. We're gonna rely on competition to control prices in the program. And it's evident to the it's evident to anyone that system has worked. Part D premiums have grown far less than premiums in the fee for service Medicare program. Prices for the Part D program grew far less than projected as opposed to part A and part B of the Medicare program. And it's because the government is not setting prices. And Tiffany, I'll just say one more thing, and and then I'll turn it over to my fellow panelists. And that is the Inflation Reduction Act, which came along last year, the, the sponsors of that so-called Inflation Reduction Act, use the word negotiation, as if the federal government is really honestly going to negotiate prices. They're not going to negotiate prices. It's price setting. It's exactly the way the Medicare program has worked for 40 years. Well, I shouldn't say worked. The way the Medicare program has operated for the last 40 years, and it hasn't worked. The cost of the Medicare program has grown exponentially compared to, for example, the inflation rate in the American economy, and that didn't happen in Part D because Part D relied on the on the private sector, on the on, on the marketplace to regulate and control drug prices. So I'll stop there and um, and see if my fellow panelists would like to comment further.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll turn it over whoever would like to, but that was an amazing introduction. Thank you so much for that.
1: I would just pick it up from there. I think um, one of the things that I know with the webinar we did back in July, which I do recommend people take a look at because Tom Thomas went in great detail of demonstrating through data what he just articulated through words. And it really was, uh, again, he and I working on the regulations, understanding the the prospective payment system, the way the department works, realizing that there are issues every year about increases in prices, increases in uh, cost for beneficiaries, and so on and so forth. In some respects, the non-interference clause was the key. It was the key ingredient to making the MMA, Part D, successful, and the stripping of that uh, to me, is was not based on any policy reason. It ultimately became, it was a political um, uh, decision. And even if you look at other elements of the IRA, the, the Part D benefit redesign, what I see is an attempt to basically sprinkle in some other things like capping out of pocket or insulin costs or premium increases, even on Part D at 6% over six years, as and I, what I call the beginning of the trade-off of innovation and access, and so to me, uh, looking at the those elements that are, by the way, would have had bipartisan support. The element that had no partisan, no bipartisan support is the negotiation, so-called as Thomas says, negotiation provision. And the first thing that I would say, as we are three days from the 20th anniversary of the signing of Part D, as it was a bipartisan piece of legislation. And it is generally thought in Washington that any legislation that's passed, especially in the healthcare realm, that you cannot get a single vote from the opposite party is probably going to be a bad piece of legislation. And that certainly is true with regards to the negotiation provision of the IRA.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And also, I did attend the webinar webinar that you're all referring to. We will make sure that we link to that as well. Uh, Medicare drug price negotiations, the impact on healthcare development and patient access to medicines. It was very, very good. We will definitely link to that um, and continue the conversation about that too. If you wanna comment afterwards, I'm all ears and we'd like to continue that conversation going as well. Um, Let's move over. Chuck, would you like to add something to this?
3: The only thing I'd add to what my colleagues had already mentioned was just highlighting the the role of patients and the impact that, that the MMA had on patients, and I would argue a big part of the reason that the Part D drug benefit was so, so successful was patients were really put at the center, and by that I mean patients were given the choices of which plan that they could enroll in. They were given the choice of which plan had the best formulary that met their needs. And because of that choice, which ultimately led to competition in the plans, Tom mentioned it. But premiums have remained essentially flat for almost 20 years. Which, again, I would challenge in any other sector of the healthcare marketplace to find any type of product where premiums have essentially remained flat for that long. And I think as we start to talk about the IRA, what you're going to see is those both the, the patient choices but also the role of competitive plans be significantly diminished. I think that's ultimately gonna be the real harm that's gonna impact patients as well.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. And, and speaking of patients, I'm definitely gonna move it over here to Andy to weigh in on that. I can tell you that as far as AR arthritis is concerned, and we started with these listening sessions that they've had also at, uh, at CMS and two of our drugs of the 10 are on that list. And extreme concern over what this is going to mean for access, what this is going to mean for innovation, uh, how patients can be at the table, how we can get involved. People are very worried about uh, losing access for our conditions in particular. Not all of these drugs work. So once they get to market, forty percent of us will respond, sixty will not respond. So if it's working, don't don't try to change that, right? And that's really where a lot in our community is leading. So I wanted to tie that in into our listeners, too, so they can say, well, why Why should I hear this? What What is important to me? Why do I need to understand this? And saying that, Andy, I'd like to turn it over to you to weigh in.
4: Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks, Tiffany. And, and um, I'll start off by saying that <laughs> I'm pretty excited that ASBM is taking on this issue because I've worked with Michael and with ASBM, like I said, for more than a decade. And Michael can tell you, he and I traveled the world along with other stakeholders in making sure that policymakers did exactly what, um, what you mentioned. Uh, that is put the patients at the forefront of these policy decisions. And we literally traveled, I remember traveling throughout Europe to Spain and to Italy and to Geneva uh, we had multiple trips to Australia to meet with the, uh, the Therapeutics Goods Agency and with Health Canada and in Latin America. And really, we were almost always the only patient and physician group or voice at the table at all of these meetings. And so the regulators listened to us and we continue to remain involved. And so the fact that ASBM is now taking on the IRA um, is really exciting for me because it keeps me involved. Um, And it's something that I'm pretty passionate about because I look at the IRA as, um, you know, some provisions good, but most of the provisions that we're discussing here today are not good for the patient. And ASBM has, as everybody said, this July webinar is something I'm glad you're going to post about, Tiffany, because everything was really a deep dive in that webinar as to why the provisions, the negotiation provisions Particularly are bad for patients. And, um, you know, I've been in the colon cancer world long enough to remember when there was just one drug for colon cancer and metastatic colon cancer was a a one year death sentence. You were lucky if you lived one year. And now we have patients who are, you know, talking about cures. We're talking about living years and years and years with this disease and making it chronic because there's now more than 30 drugs that have been approved by the FDA for colon cancer. And that's because of the investment that was made decades ago. And what I worry about, and everybody worries about with these negotiation provisions is that, uh, as as you said, Chuck, this is not a negotiation. And Thomas, it's not a negotiation. It's, um, It's the government dictating prices. And we know from where that's happening now in the world, People have much later access to medicines. People don't get access at all to medicines that have come out. In the United States, where we don't have price controls, we get somewhere between 90 to 95% access to new medicines within three months. Nowhere else in the world that has price controls does it even come close to having that kind of access to to patients. Um, I'll say one more thing, and then I'll be quiet and turn it back over, and that is... A little bit of a personal story because as everybody knows the um, the ira's uh small molecule penalty which is again discussed at length at the J- july 26th webinar i i want to bring it up again because it it affects uh, it affects my family personally and it affects many cancer patients uh personally and that is that there's a penalty built into the ira for for the development of small molecules and um, I will tell you personally that three and a half years ago, my wife was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer, and she was a never smoker. So the doctors knew that there must be something wrong. She's a young person, never smoked. There must be some mutation. And they were right. She has a rare mutation that caused her lung cancer to happen. And the treatment that's worked for her for all these years, the treatment that's worked is a small molecule. It was one that was recently approved by the FDA and then another one that she's in a clinical trial for now. These small molecules are directly targeting her cancer. They're not targeting the bad cells. She's working full time. She has no active cancer in her body right now and no side effects at all from these medicines. These are not these you know, biologic chemotherapy-like things that are, you know, killing all the good and bad cells this is directly targeting her cancer and they work and they work really well and I'm really sad to see that there would be something in the uh, IRA that targets um instead of incentivizing the creation of these small molecule pills so that's all I have to say for this I'll turn it back over <laughs> to up okay time.
0: no but but thank you for sharing that story at arthritis it you bring up an important And when we're talking about advancing innovation and precision medicine, it's something that is in the early phases in arthritis, been in cancer for a while, we have been uh, knee deep in trying to push for access to make sure that the the people who have the right treatments that we know that are going to work for them, that they have access to them I have a personal fear, what is this going to do? I feel like we're going backwards instead of moving forward. And I think that you all have made points to that. And saying that I did want to uh, circle back and you mentioned a couple of the negative things that could be coming out of the IRA. What are some of the positive things or some of the good things that possibly came out of the IRA?
2: I think the benefit redesign in Medicare Part D is probably a good thing. You know, um, Chuck and Michael will remember that when Part D was enacted, Congress essentially set aside $400 billion for the program, and that was it. And so in order to fit into the budgetary parameters, Congress created, with the administration's support, the so-called donut hole, the coverage gap, where the benefits stopped providing coverage until a, a, a beneficiary reached catastrophic coverage. And so, you know, getting rid of the donut hole and making the benefit work better for patients, that was a good thing. But the thing is, you didn't, there was clear bipartisan support for redesigning, for, for creating a new benefit design in Medicare Part D. Congress could have passed that years ago. It's that, it, it is that some members of Congress were fixated on the idea of price negotiation, which, as I said, is not a negotiation, will not be a negotiation at all. They were fixated on the idea of price negotiation and wouldn't let the good parts of the 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 IRA pass, like the benefit redesign in Medicare Part D, and 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 that's a shame that that it was tied to this really very unfortunate. An unworkable policy but that has the government basically price fixing. There's there's really no other word for it.
1: And I would add, just going back to um, the original design of Part D, as Thomas and Chuck both remember, uh, and and it's a to me it's a demonstration of when you can't get bipartisan support then you're probably not passing very good legislation. In the beginning of Part D, the conversation was about whether or not the only way you could get a prescription drug benefit was through Medicare Advantage, because the administration and some on the Hill wanted to basically really try and promote Medicare Advantage and move away from fee-for-service. And ultimately, that did not bear out, because they it, they would have not probably gotten bipartisan support going in that direction. And so to me, when I look at it again, I mentioned some of the you talk about the positive benefits, the insulin, the, the capping the out-of-pocket. The donut hole was something that we talked about. I when, I when we were passing it, we had to explain the donut hole. And what I used to say about the donut hole was even having that, because once you were out through the donut hole, you, basically, which is the gap in coverage, it was the people that used that were actually saving more money than anyone else because you got 95% coverage once you were out of the donut hole. And the idea was that those were people with catastrophic costs, but ultimately trying to balance out the overall cost of the program. What I'm most concerned about right now, again, as I was mentioning the idea of what the benefits, the the new redesign to me is a signal that we're going to give you some of this, but down the road, there's going to be an impact with regards to the innovation side of this. And there's general agreement that there is going to be an impact on the industry Chuck could certainly talk to you about it, even from being in industry now and having been uh, on the other side of things when the Part D was passed. And ultimately, it's a calculation. The biggest thing about the non-interference clause was the belief that the government can do it better. They do not really have any experience in doing it successfully, as Thomas has pointed out. And that ultimately is the biggest concern that, you know, they say, well, five years from now, we'll see how it's working. And if it's not working, we're talking about investment that provides hope down the road. And as Andy's story demonstrates, and we all have our own, I'm sure, basically the idea of, you know, hope means you have to be alive today to have hope for a month from now, a year from now. And ultimately right now there is a, you know, there is general agreement, even by those who support
2: the law, that this will impact R and D. We just don't know how much. And and I'll just add to that. that already less than a year after that, or maybe a little bit out, over a year after the IRA passed, there are people who are saying that the policy in the IRA, IRA of price negotiation should apply to launch prices of drug. I can't imagine anything more devastating to innovation than saying that the policy of price fixing would apply to launch prices of drugs. So I started off by mentioning the, the um, gene editing therapies that were approved by the FDA last Friday, who who, companies will not make that investment. That was those therapies. we, We are on the cusp of a revolution in medicine right now with these new therapies. And It will be halted in its tracks if Congress were to apply this policy to launch prices because it would really just stop innovation right in, it. as I said, right in its tracks. It would be devastating. And I just I I can't imagine why a company would invest the time and resources in a new therapy when they knew that Congress or a a government bureaucrat was going to step in and set the price of their therapies. And and just one more thing for me, that where it becomes, as we have both
1: uh, Andrew and Chuck here uh, in the oncology space in general, where it becomes most harmful, especially with a small molecule penalty, is the additional indications that happen down the road. Once you basically have to front load the indications in order to know that after nine years you're going to be negotiated, you're not going to have those additional uh, indications that primarily are helpful in the in the oncology space, and that's extremely frightening, frankly, for providing hope for the patient community.
3: It's always resonating with me. At the end of the day, patients don't get to pick the diseases that they suffer from, nor do our scientists get to pick or choose the modality that develops the best treatments that can help treat or cure those diseases. What the IRA does is it affirmatively picks and, I would say, discriminates against certain types of drugs over others. And both Michael and Thomas just talked about that, but I'll just pick on the small versus large molecule. For certain types of cancers, Andrew talked about this, small molecule drugs are incredibly effective in treating certain types of cancer. Same for brain disease. Biologics can't cross the blood brain barrier. Only small molecule drugs are really effective for treating mental health diseases. In, in the world I work in for HIV and antivirals, you need to be able to get inside the cell to be able to prevent viral replication. You can only do that with a small molecule drug. But what the IRA has done is it said that for those drugs, we're going to disincent investment going forward relative to other types of drugs. So what happens? Venture capital and investors are going to move money away from investing in those types of drugs into certain other areas. Same with, as Michael mentioned, indications. If you look at the model that has, followed, has been followed successfully for the past 40 years, for developing new cancer medicines. You start with third or fourth line therapies where there's no other treatment option for those patients. Basically, no no alternatives, no options, get approval there. And then from there, you build out, you go for second line, ultimately try to get to first line. And with each of those incremental changes, you're rewarded with additional periods of exclusivity that you can keep your exclusivity of that drug on the marketplace then you go to other disease or other indications within cancer. Probably the best example that I could think of is Keytruda, which has been a, a remarkable drug used to treat metastatic melanoma, a whole host of other cancers. If disincentives under the IRA had existed, Merck never would have pursued those other indications because they would have been subject to negotiation after a set period of time with no ability to extend that. And I think it's just now that people are starting to understand the disincentives that this is building into the system. And frankly, I think if you look at what the Congressional Budget Office said when the IRA was passed, they got it wrong. They said that as a result of IRA, only 15 new drugs aren't going to be developed. If you look at Thomas Philipson, who's a professor at University of Chicago, he said the number is probably close to 139 drugs. And then if you look at what Peter Kolchinsky, is a venture capital investor at RA uh, Associates, they have said that you already see money moving away from certain types of drugs in certain disease states because the incentive isn't there. So unfortunately, I think 10 years from now, we'll be able to look back and say, yeah, absolutely. The, the, the drugs that we were expecting to be developed aren't there. Right now, we're in a position of trying to prove the negative, and That's extremely difficult. But our fear is that unless something is done to mitigate the provisions of the IRA, Ultimately, we, what we are going to see is there will be fewer treatments available for patients going forward.
0: Yeah, that's that's 100% the concern that you hear with patients. And you know I just want to preface too, a lot of patients are still new to this. They're trying to wrap their brains around what does this all mean. And I think for me, speaking to a pa- the patients who are listening to this, that's the One important takeaway that I would like people to understand, it does take a lot of time and a lot of money to get these innovative treatments to market. And those were great examples about in cancer, in AI arthritis diseases. Ours are also treated with small molecules. Some of the diseases are rare following a similar model to what was just mentioned. Some of us, not so rare in our diseases, but we tend to filter through These And what happens when these are lifelong, average age, 20 to 40 in adults, any age in children, if I can't find the right treatment or if I don't have access to something, if and when this one fails, I could be on a biologic until I'm in my 90s, until, you know, my life is over. There is very little chance of remission often for diseases like the ones that we have. And so we have to think about that, too. What happens to whole communities if we don't have other options, that's just, to me, is ridiculous. We're looking at a future of decades and decades of having to stay in trial and error in developing comorbidities, including cancer and others. So take away for those listening who are patients, why should you get involved? Why should you understand this? Why should you join efforts with arthritis and others on this call to make sure that your voice is heard as we're going through these? That is one of the biggest takeaways right there. So I'll get off my my rant, and uh, and, and, turn it, and and flip this around. I wanted to jump ahead. I, we have an outline in front of us, but w- there was a couple mentions before on um, the consequences. We're talking about the, pr- the consequences to drug price setting uh, policies for patients and going into sort of the U.S., leading the world in innovation and looking at models that are used from other countries. Can somebody weigh in a little bit on that on well, the future of this model and what we may know based on what we're seeing other places or what it might mean to us if we lose the innovation lead in the United States.
1: Well, I'll, I'll, I can wait on that, but I wanna just bring up one point that keeps coming back to me um, through the lens of the 20th anniversary of Part D. And that is when Part D was passed, uh, after we passed it uh, signed into law 20 years ago, Uh, It was incredibly unpopular. It was passed right before a presidential election year. It was politicized as the IRA has been in the opposite way. And Thomas knows in the department, we had to go out and, and basically try and convince the Medicare population, the public at large, but mostly the Medicare population, to sign up for the prescription drug benefit with a lot of negative publicity. And so, uh, you know, essentially it was in the same way you hear about the IRA. The IRA has been, you know, it's been pulled as to the concept of negotiation and is it popular to negotiate? The question really for the patient population, when we educated the Part D population back then, and I was fortunate to be able to meet directly with beneficiaries and the president and talk specifically about what it would mean for them, we knew that at the end of the day, what we were saying was true. And so working with Secretary Levitt after Secretary Thompson, we went out and moved the popularity from, you know, 20 percent in the beginning to 90 percent just a couple of years ago. And that's because people began to see the benefits. The flip side here is that the question for the patient population on the IRA is, okay, well, now the government can negotiate, quote unquote, negotiate. What is the downside to that? What does that mean? And ultimately, you know, for example, the way quality, quality, you talk about, you know, the European system, where they look at things like quality adjusted life years and tell patients that we're going to make the equation, we're going to figure out whether or not this particular drug is available to the general population that's on a government uh, benefit. And by the way, we're gonna say that this is for the common good, because if it's not available, we're gonna offer you other things. You hear this a lot in Europe. If you look at what CMS is has, has using to determine how they negotiate drugs, comparative effectiveness has the ability to fill in quality. While everyone distances themselves from quality and says, no, 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 we're not gonna use quality. we can't use quality. that's specifically written into the law, but we can use comparative effectiveness which is basically what the HTA uses, where you start to compare whether or not it's effective compared to another drug, whether and how effective it is. And you take it out of the hands of the patient population, as Chuck kind of alluded to, to determine what works best for them. And you're doing it by limiting what is available to them. And so the European system, we've all talked about what they have for access. They do not have access to new medicines at the same time as we do. And the question is, how well is that known in the general public? It's not, because the European system is barely understood here, not really even understood by those that decided to pass the IRA, and certainly not understood by the overall patient population.
0: Thanks for that, Michael. Um, Just as a little interjection for listeners who follow Arthritis and some of our work and our peer-led education, grassroots and the health technology assessments, value assessments is one of the topics that we have, and I'm just glad that you brought up the issue with Europe and quality. And these are things where you look at different health systems and it means something different. So just as a side note, the Health Technology International Group is having a policy 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 convening meeting in San Diego in January of 2024. So at the time stamp of this, it's about a month away and I am invited to be one of the four expert patients on HTA. And in regards to um, speaking with people in Europe, I'm also the co-lead of the new ICER patient council. So um, very very interested in maybe doing a 360 expansion on how HTA also evolves here into the IRA, because there's a lot we could talk about with that as well. But thank you for, Michael, and bringing that up. Um, others who wanted to weigh in on or build on what Michael just said?
2: Well, I think Andrew made the point earlier, which is that the, at the end of the day, as the IRA is implemented over the years, it's going to result in fewer innovative therapies being available to Medicare beneficiaries, to all people in America. it's, It's going to hinder the ability of manufacturers to want to bring new medicines to market. And it is going to reduce the availability of innovative therapies. And in addition, it's not going to work. It's not going to It's not going to lower drug prices. It's not going to lower beneficiary premiums because the entire history of rate setting in the Medicare program has shown that it is a failure. It is a four-decade failure going back to the early 1980s when Congress created the payment system for inpatient hospital services that still is in existence. It has not in any way, shape, or form controlled inpatient hospital spending. The government just setting a rate for a service, setting a permissible rate of growth in the program has not resulted in lower costs in the Medicare program. Michael remembers this from the days that we were at HHS. every, every, Every time that CMS would issue a payment regulation, whether it's for inpatient hospital services, outpatient physicians, home health, a group of us would sit around in a room and make a decision, okay, how much is the inflation rate going to be? How much are we gonna pay for this particular DRG? How much are we gonna pay for this particular CPT code? Imagine the absurdity of that, that that a bunch of bureaucrats are sitting around in a conference room in the sixth floor of the Humphrey building in Washington, D.C., deciding how much is going to get paid for a particular test or a procedure or a therapy or a diagnostic. It really is just it. it, it the, the history is replete with examples that that just does not work to lower prices. And the same thing is going to happen here. They can dress it up However, they want they can call it negotiation. They can call they can use the they use a much overused word setting a fair price. It's not going to work.
1: Yeah, and and um, I would just I want to just add one thing, and that is going back to Chuck talking about whether it's fifteen, whether this whether it's CBO saying that fifteen drugs won't be developed, or whether it's the list of one hundred and thirty nine the 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 question is there's an acknowledgement that we have drugs that are not going to be developed and so the question is are you willing to be on that list do you know which ones no one can the, say the which, list
2: of 15 or the list of 130 exactly That's if, the point. if one of those 15 drugs is a treatment for als do you, want, do you want to have ALS and be told that even if it is only 15 drugs, do you want to be told, well, you're not going to get this therapy because we've decided it's not worthwhile to invest in this, in the research that's necessary to bring the drug to market? Sorry to interrupt, Michael, but that's I just- That's a great
1: point. That's make- exactly the point. And that's something that goes back to my- I, I talked before about when Chuck and I used to work on the Hill together and patient groups would come in and talk to us about funding at NIH. And we always said, go talk to NIH. That's why Congress basically gives them the funding and they figure out where it goes because we didn't want to deal with which patient groups would come in and make an argument on behalf of one patient group against another. And so ultimately, it really does matter. We don't care whether it's 15 or 140. The Patient groups should understand that they could be one of the 15 if you want to use it. And you're acknowledging that there is going to be a number, let's just say somewhere between those two numbers. And who is going to be on that list, they can't say with any certainty. And so ultimately stories like Andy's and and as I said, we all I have a mother-in-law who da- died from ALS. We can all talk about, you know, how you incentivize someone to look into these things and and ultimately provide any kind of hope. And the reality is. Back to Thomas's point, it's bureaucrats that are doing this. It's CMS, and basically they can't do it without the HTA community. And I could say, Tiffany, when you talk about the San Diego meeting, I was in Boston for the ISPOR meeting back in that, Thomas, that's when you and I had dinner. That meeting is an HDA meeting in which they all talked about launch price. That is where they want to go. They want to be involved in launch price. They say there's no point to HDA unless we're involved in launch price. So it's going to be coming. This is the beginning, not the end with regards to what they're going to do in terms of negotiations and expanding the list and expanding the criteria.
3: Just two points to follow on to the points Michael is making. If you look in the Senate, there's already the smart act that's been. So called introduced, I believe it's currently 30 Democratic senators are co sponsoring that. So, a majority of Democrats in the Senate, they would take negotiation for both small and large molecule to five years. That was also in President Biden's budget proposal. Similar proposals in the House would significantly expand and accelerate the number of drugs that are subject to negotiation. So, given the overall budget crisis and crunch that Congress will be facing, the, the push to expand price controls beyond where they are today is going to happen. And, and the sponsors of those proposals are explicit. They want to achieve European style prices. And this goes back to the point that Tom was making and like what, what has happened in Europe as a result? Well, we know in the UK, the number of clinical trials for new innovative new therapies has significantly declined. Also, overall survival for cancer is significantly worse in the UK and other European countries relative to the United States, largely in part because they don't have access to the newest, most innovative medicines. We know in the UK, we can't even do clinical trials on certain cancer therapies because the standard of care is such they don't even have access to what patients, as a matter of course, are available and able to use here in the United States today. The delayed access. Across Europe, we have seen patients can't get access to the newest, most innovative therapies even after they're approved by the regulatory authorities, they may be approved from a regulatory perspective, but then these same agencies, whether it's NICE in the UK or others across Europe, simply won't pay for those medicines. And again, that people get very upset, understandably, about the prices that are charged in Europe. Nobody talks about the trade-offs that are being made in those countries that mean that patients cannot
2: get access to the most innovative medicines that could potentially save their lives. I want to just pick up on a point that Chuck just made about the desire by some in Congress and some influencers or opinion leaders in this country to expand the list of drugs that are subject to negotiation. I just read an editorial in the Washington Post a couple of weeks ago suggesting that the solution to the high cost of the new GLP-1 agonists that um, some people take for weight loss, others take for um, A1C control for diabetics, that the solution to the high cost was to have um, a grand compromise where Medicare would now cover weight loss drugs, and in exchange for that, the government would negotiate the price of those drugs. I, I mean, I can't imagine a more ineffective and unproductive idea than setting the price for, for these new therapies. Why? Chuck's company knows this better than anything else. Chuck's company d- discovered a cure for hepatitis C, and it had a high list price. And everyone, there were cries of outrage about the, the price for Sovaldi. And what happened after a couple of years? Competition happened. It lowered the price. And that's exactly what's gonna happen with GLP-1 agonists and, and any other drug that has a high list price. Eventually, competition, is going to come in and it's going to lower the price because the marketplace works and government price setting doesn't work. And, 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 and there's really no better example of the hepatitis C therapies as they started to be, as, as there started to be competition in that market, the price started to come down. And it's a cure. And it's a cure. (laughs) Yeah. I
1: mean, that's, Amazing.
0: And just on the the note of the out of pocket costs and the high cost, you know, we all have our opinions regarding better ways to address this and fix it. What thoughts do any of you have on this in particular? Could be
3: pharmacy benefit down.
0: managers, or so <laughs> yeah. it comes to my head.
3: That certainly, if you look at the amount of money that's flowing through the system that is not going to manufacturers and instead going to entities that provide little or no value, the PBMs would seem to be a logical place. If you look at the price differential between the net price in terms of what manufacturers actually get versus the list prices that we are charged, that that is being driven by the PBM industry and that, that creates significant challenges for patients because they're charging their copays and out of pocket costs off those higher list prices. And there, there's legislation about the House and Senate that we hope is going to help at least address some of those issues by requiring that at least beneficiary cost sharing amounts be tied to the actual price the PBMs are negotiating for those medicines. And I think if we could achieve that, it doesn't solve all the problems, but at least would be a significant benefit for patients.
0: Absolutely. And um, we also will link to this episode for those out there who are interested in getting involved in writing letters or about um, making sure that you have access. There are several of these bipartisan efforts underway to try to um address the transparency needs in pharmacy benefit managers who are these middle people negotiating these prices um, i did want to just a side note as part of participating i participated in the cms listening cms listening sessions also a, another whole um could be a 360 offspin of the, pres- the prescription drug affordability boards that are happening in all the states also with the price setting and the commonality that came up was patients were unanimously saying the affordability isn't an issue for me. The the problem is I skip doses or this happens because of the pharmacy benefit managers and utilization management. So in addition to we're talking about the high cost, we really have to also at some point break out and talk about what, the reality of pbms are having when we're talking about access and the true cost of these drugs so i'm glad that you wanted to talk a little bit about that did anyone else want to want to weigh in on out of pocket costs or thoughts
1: well i mean all i would say is that we we've all discussed the fact that you know there are some provisions within the ira that what i say is could have gotten bipartisan support they could have passed it this was the, 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 the big target of the IRA was the political win against basically the negotiation provision. And I think we, in the period of time that we've already talked about today, have made it very clear that there are going to be major downstream negative effects from that provision. No one can quantify them either way. And the question you ultimately have to ask yourself is, um, are you willing to be the patient group that's affected by the medicine that's no longer available to you? Uh, Andy talks about it with regards to his wife's situation, which is three additional years. I, as I as I will just offer one personal story of my own, which is that my brother-in-law, who died of thyroid cancer, also was diagnosed when he was 24 years old. He basically was told at that time that he would live six months. And when I used to talk with him, he said he died at 36. In the 12 years, he had five children. He went to medical school. He did a residency. He got married, et cetera, et cetera. You cannot quantify the value of those 12 years of life that he used to say. Specifically, he was it was staying alive from medicine to medicine to hope for something that would solve it for good. But knowing that things change in a six-month period, you could be from one medicine to another medicine to another medicine... And the period of time for him was 12 years. That's a significant period of time which he lived an entire life. And it's something uh, Andy on over the last 13, Andy talks a lot about more weddings, more graduations, more, that's a real life example. I just came from uh, a, a funeral of a relative who died of cancer and all of his children who are now grown Uh, You know, we're there and it's an amazing testament to the industry, what it did to keep him uh, alive. And he was um, very aware of what it was that was allowing him to live, knowing that at the end of the day, he still passed away at 36. That's incredibly difficult. But he also was greatly appreciative of of what the industry did to keep him uh, really to give him an entire existence and provide five children to the world.
0: Andy, did
4: you wanna add anything? I mean, everything has been said so, so well by the other speakers, there's so little for me to add. Uh, I would just be echoing, um, this is a really bad thing for patients long-term. We're gonna see less drugs. We don't know how many less drugs, but uh, whatever that disease group that's not gonna get their drugs, it shouldn't be that way. We have the technology, we have the innovation, and, and the money's there. Um, so th- this law, as Michael has said, is a political win, but it's a loss for patients long term. And um, the only thing I think um, I would add that's that I think is worthwhile for the listener is, what do we do now? Where do I get more information? What can we do about this? And we've already talked about Um, going back and watching that July 26th recording, because there's a lot of valuable information in that. But there was also a white paper that was put out uh, by ASBM, I think, and a couple of authors uh, that was publishing Gabby uh, recently, and people should look for that. Michael, I don't know if uh, you have one. on the microsite. Yeah, okay. So if that's on the microsite, that was the next thing I was going to say, is that ASBM has built – a micro website for this exact issue that lays out all of the things we've been talking about. And is it, um, is it IRA? Yep.
1: IRA patient info.
4: IRA patientinfo.org or.com. Dot, dot org. Dot org. Dot org. So IRA inflation reduction act patient info.
1: Yeah. Dot
4: org. And it's got, uh, the sample letters. I think the statements and comments that, um, ASBM has sent it to uh, CMS and all this information. So I suggest people go to that website to learn more about this and see what we can do. My organization has actually filed a lawsuit against the administration over the IRA provisions um, that we're not happy with. So for all the reasons that that we have um, talked about today, we actually have a a, a lawsuit pending against CMS and the administration on this provision. So that's one of the ways we're fighting it. Not all patient groups can do that. So what they can do is to uh, sign on letters and they can do op-eds to newspapers and ASBM can help with all of those things. Um, so that's kind of where I wanted to close it out is that there's some action steps that can be taken.
0: Yeah, thanks for that. And I'll actually piggyback on what you were saying too. So, arthritis as a member of ASBM. So, you can also, we will connect you to those as well. Um, in addition, arthritis is going to be leading a national coalition for price setting. It will include the IRA for CMS. It will also include the Prescription Drug Affordability Board. So, that is underway in development and already had a first informal coalition meeting. We got to get a name. So, <laughs> But that is, uh, we don't have a name yet. So as of as of December, but that is underway. And uh that in one of the unique uniqueness of this coalition is in addition to patient organizations, cross-disease, because we are all affected by this price setting, is we also want to have extension of Groups like ASBM, other coalitions that are doing amazing work, so we can connect patients to that. And in addition, we're going to have a second level, the patient coalition. So we'll be recruiting patients to be part of learning, and so that we start to recruit people, have an education component where we're led by people teaching patients about these. And then hopefully, as the opportunities to have voices. We will have education already up and running and a whole pool of patients who will be comfortable to be able to, whether that's speaking, submitting comments, joining us as uh, we submit comments. So there's going to be a whole lot of ways that patients can get involved. So we're really excited about that as well. Can
1: can I just say one thing to all of that too? And first of all, I want to especially thank Thomas and Chuck, uh, who were in my in our webinar as well, my perspective on this is for people to remember that there is an education component that needs to happen nationally. I mean, we literally uh, Thomas and I, you know, at the national level, had to educate the entire Medicare population, and that's a difficult uh, task. And we had the opportunity of having the White House and every you know other entity behind us. It is a big task. Number two, the thing to remember is that this is, there's multi levels to this whole overall battle on this issue. The lawsuits are one level to deal with this issue. There's also obviously the educational level for not only the patient population, but obviously also policymakers at the state and the federal level. And then finally, much of this is going to be dealt with obviously internally at CMS and HHS. So there is an internal component that is absolutely, will will be reflecting the uh, an administration that could change in the next election. So there's many, many ways for this um, uh, continuing battle to go on and to always keep in mind ultimately that you know, the implementation phase within the department is one, um, no one has mentioned on this call, it's one thing we did talk about on the on the webinar, the fact that um, CMS has chosen to go through a very quick process, not through notice and comment, through guidance to implement quickly, uh, which is a detrimental down the road, shows lack of concern for the patient or any frankly public input, That they have to consider which is completely the opposite of what we did through part d Uh, thomas talked about the amount of uh time we spent on rules putting out rules for comment in part d and ultimately there means that there's no um real requirement by the department to listen to patients at all so it's going to be really critical that we are able to kind of articulate that both on a grassroots level but also on a, a kind of inside both the Hill and the department, meaning HHS, uh, because things are going to, they're already happening. The list is out, they're already working. And um, ultimately you can both try and um, get rid of the law, but it's, you know, you also want to be able to affect the implementation of it as well.
0: Yeah. That's a great point, Michael. Um, Okay. Well, we are getting to that point where we're wrapping it up. So in saying that, uh, I also wanted to ask, uh, Tom, did you have any Additional comments or thoughts?
2: The only other thing I was going to say, Michael actually just said it, which is the process that the administration is using to implement the IRA leaves very little opportunity for public comment. Um, Andy, I believe your lawsuit addresses that issue. In fact, Um, it is quite the opposite of what we did in Part D, which is we wanted to have a robust public comment process. And we did, in fact, have one. And it was important for us to do that. And it's a better program because of it. And I think the IRA is going to be a worse program because they didn't really solicit public comment in any meaningful way.
0: And um, that that will be another extension to this that we'll make sure we follow up on. Uh, I know that there's a lot of organizations out there that are commenting on the process and thoughts and feedback back to CMS on the process of involving or lack thereof of patients' voices and um, even just the difficulty that was around that. Um, so that is a whole other, again, conversation that I would love to continue and talk about more. Uh, but thank you for those for those comments, Tom. And Chuck, is there anything else that you would like to add?
3: So thank you both to you, Tiffany, and also for Andy. As I look at the the entire debate around drug pricing, whether it's IRA or this, what's happening in the states with PDABs,
4: mm-hmm.
3: the key is if we're going to be able to mitigate the worst aspects of this, it's going to have to involve getting patients engaged. Yep. Because right, right now, the folks on the other side who are pushing this have argued that there's no negative impact to patients. I think based on the past hour's discussion, I think it's very clear that that's not the case, but until and unless we can get the patient community engaged in their voice, telling their stories and their concerns with this, we're just going to see more of the same. We're going to see these price controls expanded. So thank you for the opportunity to do this, and thank you for all the work that both of you are doing.
2: Yeah, thank you so much. Yes, let me echo my thanks as well. I should have said that, sorry, but I appreciate it very much also. alrighty. righty.
0: Well, and thank all of you so much for coming to the table and having this conversation. There's so many amazing points that were we were discussed. And of course, like always on the show, that just opens the door to continued conversation. So who knows? Maybe we'll be back in a few months continuing the conversation um, uh, and as we move forward and navigate these sort of unknown of where we're gonna go here in the future. And saying that, you can find this episode on our website at aiarthritis.org backslash um, talk show. And then also if you're interested in learning more about signing up with any of our advocacy programs, including this new coalition we're talking about or any of the peer-led education programs, you can find that at aiarthritis.org backslash advocacy. And other than that, we always invite you to take a seat at the table and continue the conversation. So feel free to find us on any social media channel at IFAIarthritis, arthritis, or go ahead and send us an email if you would like at info at dot or org. excuse me. And we will be more than happy to continue this conversation. And saying that again, Thank you to the guests today. This has been an amazing conversation. Looking forward to continuing it because I think together and only together are we going to be able to move the needle on this very important issue. So thank you all so much.
1: Thanks,
3: everyone. Thanks, sir. Thanks. Thanks.